Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. Welcome back to the Westside Investors Network podcast. I am your host, Trent Werner. On today's Deal Deep Dive episode, we are joined by Matt Ryan. Matt has over 10 years of experience in real estate and construction. Matt does everything from real estate brokerage, property management, and general contracting, and his personal commercial portfolio has over a 25% IRR since inception. Now let's welcome Matt Ryan. Matthew Ryan, thanks again for joining us today. Before we get going, I'm sure the people that are listening are going to want to know more about you, naturally. If you want to take a couple minutes and explain how you started Revive, how you got to where you're at, and I know you have prior business experience, so I'd love to hear about that as well. Yeah. I was looking for a career in 2009, 2010. I left my family's business, you know, not a, not a job, right? And at the time, the field of energy efficiency and green building implementation was a big emphasis under Energy Secretary Stephen Chu, under Obama. It was meant to kind of revitalize, you know, a decimated construction workforce in a good way for us to, you know, march toward energy independence, retrofitting commercial buildings, focused on retrofitting existing residential and implementing advanced building technology and energy efficiency implementation and new construction as well, right? And so I dove headfirst into that field, you know, working for track home builders, working for custom builders, helping homeowners solve complex problems with their HVAC system or, you know, comfort problems in their home, moisture. It's really kind of encompassed what they call the field of building science. And so it touched on a lot of different things. And I learned a lot in construction. I broke profitability my third year. You know, I learned how to run a small business. Ultimately, I wanted to try to scale it up. And several others had tried to do that, albeit unsuccessfully. I tried raising capital in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I located the business. I was a little bit stuck. I had invested in a duplex in 2013, you know, had some money that I had put aside and saved up. And, you know, at that time, I went to Denver, I went to San Francisco, I met with some people, you know, kind of within the entrepreneurial community, in addition to people who were already in my industry. And, you know, I said, I know that I want to start businesses, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I don't think that I want to be in this industry anymore. I eventually just packed my stuff to move to San Francisco. And ultimately, you know, over the course of about six to nine months, figured out that I, this is what I wanted to do. And it kind of started back with the, you know, the Miss Pam project or my interaction with Miss Pam which was, you know, a community member where I invested in that neighborhood. And ultimately my, you know, the thesis for Revive was how I was going to revitalize this neighborhood while trying to focus on keeping some of the existing community members like Miss Pam while also catering housing to, you know, young professionals and people like that who were moving to the neighborhood. And so I was touching on this, you know, very broad complex project of community revitalization 
we use the term gentrification a lot, you know, these kind of societal, you know, negative consequences that come within line with real estate investing. I was very fascinated by the issue. And, you know, for me, that was a problem that I wanted to, you know, dedicate my some time to in my career to helping to solve. And so that's how ultimately Revive came to fruition. Awesome. I love it. It's interesting that you were in the kind of green and energy efficient space, you know, when you first started, because I was at a conference, I don't know, a couple months ago, and that was a huge topic of, you know, one of the speakers, they were talking all about, you know, all this energy efficient construction and how much waste happens in construction, inefficiencies and everything like that. So it was interesting. You were kind of on the beginning side of that whole niche. Yeah, I was early to the game. And, you know, there's kind of two separate worlds. There's the efficiency of the structure itself. And like you mentioned, there's the green building aspect, which is, you know, what is the carbon impact of renovating a structure, constructing that building? Where are the materials built? You know, how much waste is produced, which is like a whole other realm of just trying to create a really efficient, you know, high performance structure or, you know, building, so to speak. And so, yeah, there's a lot of nuances to it. And it's very complex and very difficult. And for us, we weren't seeing the consumers, you know, really latch on to this idea because it is a challenging topic. And, you know, people want a comfortable house that's affordable, you know, and that's really what they want. So, you know, there was definitely some inherent challenges, but it's good to hear that, you know, the topic is bubbling back up to the surface again. Absolutely. Let's talk about, I mean, you mentioned that you have this focus or kind of your core value, right? And obviously it hit home, you felt connected to it. So now that's how you, I guess, you know, that's one of your whys, right? The projects that you've done so far, and I know there's a handful of them, are all of them kind of following that suit or are there other driving factors for some of the projects that you've done? Not necessarily financially, obviously that's a part of business, but are there other outside factors that have driven your assets? So the first project that we did in the Envelope or Revive, we did as a value add project. You know, it was a low barrier of entry for an up and coming syndicator, you know, or aspiring syndicator at the time. It was an 11 unit that we sourced off market, you know, and what we did was we wanted to implement kind of this proprietary strategy of, you know, value add, but also focusing on tenant retention. This building had a ton of deferred maintenance, right? As most of them do. Rents were around, the average rent roll was around $700. Okay. This was in 2019, 2018 in Sacramento. And, you know, what we did is we said, hey, you know, how can we structure this? Like, how can we retain some of these tenants while making these capital upgrades? We're willing to defer a little bit of return. But, you know, the one thing that the developer told me in Charlotte when I brought him this two-page idea called the Miss Pam Project, which was eventually revived, he's like, you got to make a good return, a market-leading return for your investors. A number one, right? And balance everything else. And so we unwrote a, a situation where if we allowed the tenants to sign a two-year lease, we did gradual escalations, we did code level upgrades for their units, okay? Not full renovations, you know, not full 25, $30,000 renovations, code level upgrades to their units. You know, we were in the black essentially if we did that and they signed a two-year lease with these escalators. Now we didn't have rent control at that time. So, you know, the rent escalators were pretty steep, but they were predictable. Some people ended up leaving. I think we lost about two or three, two to three actually took the deal. And we were like, this is a net positive, right? And in our minds, we were trying to formulate, you know, a strategy and a unique model that we felt a debt provider or maybe a tax abatement could come in and compensate us for, 
you know, that kind of loss to lease as we talk about in the industry, right? right. And maybe even and start to dive into the nuance of this. And so we instead, we stabilize the project. We put, you know, about 25, almost 30% of the project of the capital back into the deal. We renovated those units where people moved out. Unfortunately, we weren't able to keep them, but some people stayed on. And so we thought it was a win. We felt like we had a model there that worked. And when Sacramento passed rent control shortly thereafter, we were like, oh man, this isn't conducive to this type of environment, you know, to the thing we're trying to create. And frankly, at the time, everybody was piling into C and B value add deals. And so, you know, the profit premium, the ability for us to do something kind of in kind, you know, and sacrifice a little bit of profit, there was even less opportunity for us to execute that model and still be able to provide a market leading return to investors. So we said, you know, hey, we've got to rethink this strategy in the near term. And that's when we ultimately pivoted into co-living because it still checked a lot of those boxes. We felt like it, you know, it attacked this problem of balancing displacement and providing missing middle housing in addition to having an affordability component, you know, workforce housing affordability component to young professionals. And so for us, it, that was, you know, it hit our thesis, so to speak. And, you know, for us, what's kind of blossomed into Revive is really trying to productize these ideas, right? Trying to take a model that's outside the box that solves a problem in the built environment, you know, in the real estate realm that is a result of what would otherwise create unintended socioeconomic consequences. And so, you know, co-living for us is a great, call it MVP, you know, minimal viable product that we really believe in and still checks the revived thesis for us. And so that's been our primary focus since about 2020. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. I think you might be the first person we've had on this show talk about co-living. I mean, being from Portland, I've seen and having a property management company that I worked with and all that fun stuff, I've seen co-living get really hairy if not done correctly. And so the fact that you're turning it into a business model and doing it correctly, following the rules, I think it's a niche that not a lot of people are in or even think about for that matter. So that's really interesting. I appreciate that. Yeah, it is a tough niche, you know, but there are successful operators out there that have done it and done it well, Common being one of them. Open Door, they recently shuttered their doors, but had a really good run. I think they were up there in Portland for quite some time. Bungalow to name a few. So yeah, I mean, COVID really put a lot of those opcos, if you want to call them that, you know, operating companies, property management companies on the back burner, unfortunately, only kind of the strong survived, right? But yeah, all in all, we're a big believer in the business model and just the fact that there's going to be substantial demand in the near term because of that demographic, that 22 to 35 demographic and how much of their money is being put to rent every month, you know, and the fact that majority of them are still going to be flocking to urban cores for the high paying jobs, you know, which is a trend that's been going on for decades and 
you know, mind you, we're not believers that even COVID is going to really disrupt that. I don't disagree with you there. So going on this co-living trend, we're going to talk about a deal in Colorado, Denver, to be specific today. How did you find this deal and what made you want to take this deal down? Yeah, it's a really interesting story, of course, which is kind of why I picked it. We had a 20,000 square foot adaptive reuse loft that we were going to do in Oakland that we were going to actually do for live work, which was another product that we were kind of looking to get off the ground. As you can understand the theme here, we like these idea of these kind of baby products that are new in the market and a little bit outside the box. We had a last minute environmental issue tank that deal. And the duplex that I mentioned that I bought in Charlotte, I'd already 1031 and bought an industrial property that my family leased back for me. So I had sold that property to buy this warehouse. (laughs) So after I negotiated a massive concession from the seller, the environmental engineer calls me the next day and says, hey, your exhaust for this, you know, environmental issue, we're going to do sub-slab depressurization, right? Because there was previously an unpermitted tank out back you know, it's going to be subject to city council. And we were like, okay, this is it. We're done. We're out. And I had already sold and gone under contract. So I was planning on 1031ing or opportunities, putting in an opportunity zone fund and pairing investors to go in that loft. I had been trying to get into Denver for, talked about getting into Denver for 12 or 18 months, you know, and they say necessity is the mother of invention. (laughs) I started perusing through Denver's stock at the time And they had a ton of these beautiful old office buildings that were been on the market for a while that are trading at relative discounts and were kind of conducive, you know, to a good co-living setup. And so long story short, we ended up negotiating a pretty substantial discount with the sellers. And the interesting thing was the building that we bought was on a 15,000 square foot lot. And they had toyed with the idea of a parcel split. And we had actually just started another project in Oakland, Berkeley, um, where we were executing this strategy. And it was nice because it was kind of outside the box enough that, you know, it was a little too small for most developers, but a little too big for your average 10, 31 buyer, you know, who we were com- just beating our heads against the wall trying to compete with. Yeah. And so we ended up getting them to sell or carry the deal for us. We saved an origination fee. And in our mind, this lot was the cherry. Like they thought they were getting a good deal. We thought we were getting a good deal, but they didn't really think that we were going to develop the lot, you know, and hadn't really actively pursued it. So for us, it was a really great win-win for everyone, you know. So I 1031 those funds. I pulled some money back because I had a substantial amount of equity. I made a critical error in that one that I want to bring up to people that I want to share. I ended up 1031ing less proceeds than I took on my boot. And if you do that, you are still subject to capital gains. (laughs) So that was one of the first, I think one of the first six-figure mistakes I ever made in my business. And it stung like hell because it was just a matter of like $35,000 that if I had to put more money down on the deal, I would have not had to pay capital gains on my boot. And it hurt, man. It was one of those painful mistakes, but I was just you know, trying to get the deal done, 1031, everyone knows how it goes. And yeah, so we ended up buying that deal. We are developing and have already split off the lot. We're currently under construction, renovating. It's been a joyous process trying to get permits from the city of Denver, nine months. <laughs> and yeah, it's going to be our first co-living deal in Denver. And we're kind of following the trend of other operators where you pick off a small deal Use that as your proof of concept in a new city, get your rents, get your operating model established and scale up from there. And so, 
we're really excited to be bringing that to market. I'm glad you, one, shared your mistake because I think everyone can learn from mistakes and hopefully someone hears that and can avoid that same mistake in the future. Yeah. I feel like I need a billboard though. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I really want the people to not have to suffer like I did on that one. (laughs) That one really hurt. You know, and just engaging your CPA in that process, in my mind, I already knew, right? I already done 1031s. It wasn't a big deal. And I just got a little overly confident, you know, I didn't bring in my team that I had available to me. So that's why the CPAs get paid what they get paid because they're very valuable. The other thing I wanted to touch on is you mentioned something about getting your first deal, kind of getting your feet wet, letting people know in the area that you're serious. Mm -hmm. This is something that over the last three years, I've really started to become familiar with because our company is trying to expand to new markets. And even in our local market where we know a lot of people, if you're not serious and you know you're kind of just testing the waters you're not ever going to find the good deals no one's going to bring you the good deals and this is honestly pretty true you have to show people that you can do a deal you can close you can, you can implement a business plan and i think that's really valuable information that a lot of people overlook especially out of state investments yeah and you know and if we can kind of break this down in percentages right like you get a deal done you'll have convinced about 25% of your audience that you're legit. If you stabilize it and you get it up and going, okay? You'll turn some heads. The deal that I did in SAC, I remember broker was like, this was completely off my radar. And I'm like, perfect, perfect, right? I found an anomaly in the market, perfect. But it didn't get me that reputation that I'd only convinced about 20. To get to the 60, 75% of brokers in that market, you have to execute on a deal, stabilize it, and then be looking for your second or maybe your third. Because at that point, and I just had a great conversation with a broker the other day, and I just sent him my back of the napkin math on a deal that he sent me. I said, hey, I've already underwrote this one. I've already walked it. Here's my number. Here's what I, and here's why. And when you do that, it's so much less adversarial, you know, where you're bartering over positions and this and that. It's like, hey man, if you can convince the seller, we both know they're high. And it's just an interesting dialogue and shift in power plays where you're with people where the broker and you are really trying to get the deal done. You're being very, fairly transparent versus you know, it's just like this weird kind of jockeying of position, you know, where they think you're lowballing them. And when you can talk those numbers fluidly, right? And just like, I know this, I know that, you build a lot of trust with brokers because they know you know your shit. And that's the most important thing. So yeah, to emphasize, overemphasize that point, you know, I wouldn't say don't do an average deal, but there is some opportunity cost associated with sitting on the sidelines right? And getting to that next step. And I came very close to not doing that deal in Denver, but I had a fractional CEO at the time convince me, he's like, Matt, first of all, you're going to pay six figures in tax, which I ended up paying anyways. <laughs> but he's like, think about just getting this deal done, getting into the market, improving yourself. What would you pay in marketing to get that exposure, to get that reputation? 50,000, 60,000? You know, he's like, you got an opportunity to make a great deal work and turn some money in, but also, you know, save the tax burden, but then also make an entry into the market. And so I would also encourage people to think about what is that dollar amount? What would you pay to get into a market and be able to have 35% of the market open to knowing you're a player? You know, because when you start monetizing that time, that opportunity costs, it's a different framework. Absolutely. I've never really thought about it that way, but that's a great mindset to have is what would you pay in marketing to get the exposure of completing a deal and getting on the radar of the players in that area? 
you know, that's not a go do a bad deal in the market because that'll hurt. Yeah. You know? yeah. But, you know, everyone wants to hit a home run in their first deal and the market kind of makes you have to do that. But, you know, a triple or a double and learning a lot, you know, especially if you're maybe utilizing family and friends money where you can do a, a structure where you're not promising people a big equity check, but maybe you're doing like fixed debt at eight to 10%, you know, position is equity, all that type of stuff. A lot of people that do those deals and then they're just trying to get the upside beyond eight, you know, there's a lot of interesting ways you can structure that and, you know, give yourself a little bit of cushion to learn. So. Absolutely. So this co-living deal in Denver, I'm looking at it here. It's nine rooms. I'm seeing a five-year hold period. When did you guys acquire this one? We acquired it in September, 2021. So we're approaching the halfway point. How has this deal flowed so far? How has it gone for you? Yeah, honestly, it's been a huge pain in the butt. (laughs) (laughs) We've done not, you know, it was nine months of permitting approvals. That was supposed to be four to five in Denver. So that was number one. We've really struggled to have GCs. We're going on our third general contractor right now. Now, the first one we hired in a pre-con basis. And as we got ready to start, they pulled back and gave us a ridiculous number, you know, that was almost double their original number just to get out of the deal, you know, pretty strong tactic, right? The other one that we hired, we kept the cash flow book open for him a little bit and he took advantage of that. And then things got really technical and difficult for him and he bailed on us. And now we're in the process of repositioning it now. And so for a really small deal, it's been extremely challenging, but we're holding on to the fact that we can hopefully still make money on the second phase with, you know, lifting this land and then we have a little bit more cushion, but yeah, I mean, an old historic building for that small a scale, you know, 500 to a million bucks in construction costs. Our original budget was like in the fours, low fours, high threes. It's a really hard find for general contractors. You know, most of these guys are working with homeowners. They're easily ripping 20% margin working with homeowners on 250 to half million dollar projects. So to work with a developer who's savvy, knows the numbers, you know, can raise the, we call it the bullshit flag. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really a challenge getting those guys on board and the level of sophistication you kind of command for a project of that size. There's often not many people who can do it. Well, and that, I mean, it kind of rolls with what you were saying earlier. It's too small for certain people and too large for other people. So I think it comes with the vendors and the contractors that you totally. need to find too for these types of jobs. Yeah, totally. It's a weird space to be in, you know, and we don't plan on being there forever, but yeah, you know, it's a stepping stone and it's a great building. It was a always a passion of mine to renovate a historical building, you know, revive in its early stages. I was thinking about just starting a custom home remodeling business, you know, and piggybacking on the construction side. Cause I just love the idea of taking an old building and kind of rebuilding it, revitalizing it. Right. And so, you know, for me, it was kind of a lifelong dream to be able to do it. And it hasn't been easy. <laughs> it's definitely had its challenges. But you know, once it's done, I know we'll be proud of it. So going forward, obviously we're still kind of in the thick of it, but going forward with this deal, what's your is the whole time still projected at five years? What's your plan of disposition or refinance? What are you guys thinking? Yeah, once we split off, we're already splitting off the lot. We're in pre-construction on that one, getting ready to do a building department submittal. I think once we build the one next door, the duplex next door, which would be 10 beds. We'll make a decision then if we sell it as a portfolio together or we rip that one off and hold on to this building. William Lang is a very famous Denver architect. He designed this building. It's one of five in the neighborhood. I kind of see it as something that I want to hold on to forever. But, you know, as you build and scale a a real estate portfolio, you don't always, you can't always get attached to things, right? Right. It's a business deal at the end of the day. And, you know, we'll see. 
to me, it's kind of like a work of art. So it's kind of hard to part with it. The idea of parting with it right now, you know, but we'll see. Well, and only time will tell. So I'm excited to see what comes of it and the duplex that you're talking about. Where can people hear more from you or find out more about you, Matt? Yeah, just go to our website, re-viv.com. There's a Calendly link on there. You can book a time with me. My assistant will reach out and coordinate on my behalf. You know, we are raising capital to scale up to 100 doors in both of our prospective markets. So we are opening up, you know, equity pipeline now and starting to get aggressive after some more deals in Denver and Sacramento. We're really excited about expanding our footprint in the co-living space. So definitely reach out. Very nice. And we'll make sure to have that linked in the show notes down below. Matt, thanks again for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and I'm excited to share this with the world. Yeah. Thank you, Trent. Appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.